folks, Dr. Travis McMacken here. Welcome or welcome back, as the case may be. Thank you for choosing to spend a bit of your day with me. I hope that I can at least help you to think some interesting thoughts. I'll be back with you in a moment after the music ends. Today I'm back to talk about Section 2 in Karl Barth's Göttingen Dogmatics, continuing on with the series that I've got going on the Göttingen Dogmatics. Section 2 is entitled, Preaching as the Starting Point and Goal of Dogmatics. And so I'm going to start by reading the Diktatsatz, the uh, par- short paragraph that Barth put at the head of his sections that would have been taken down verbatim by students. And so I'm going to read that and then just dive in to the different points in this section. So here's the Diktatsatz. The divine address to which dogmatic reflection must relate directly is preaching, that is, the proclamation of the Christian church, which has its basis in revelation and scripture. This reflection is twofold. It involves, first, the hearing of the word of God, which is actually spoken in this proclamation, and it then involves the task of truly speaking the word of God in this proclamation. Both take place as we work back from preaching itself to the underlying scripture and revelation. Dogmatics is the methodical execution of this movement. The theses that are established in the process are dogmas. A dogma achieves symbolic status when the church or one of the churches publicly recognizes it. So that's the end of the Diktatsatz. And uh, subsection in section number two, subsection one, is entitled The Point of Dogmatics. And so what Bart's really working to set up here is to identify Christian preaching as what he calls, quote, the raw stuff of dogma and dogmatics, end quote. And that quote is on page 24, the raw stuff of dogma and dogmatics. And so he kind of uh, goes back to his understanding of how Schleiermacher sets up the church as a fellowship of spirit or a fellowship of faith. And this is uh, the prevailing concept of the church in the 19th century liberal tradition. And Barth does not say that it is not a fellowship of spirit and faith. The church is for Barth a fellowship of spirit and faith, but he thinks that fellowship of spirit and faith uh, is grounded by something prior to it. It's grounded by the Holy Spirit's work through preaching, and preaching specifically in the forms of word and sacrament. So we've seen this concern with Bart before, where he does not deny entirely uh, what Schleiermacher and the 19th century liberal tradition uh, was up to, but he wants to redirect attention to the way that all of that is grounded in the prior initiative and act of God. So yes, a fellowship of spirit and faith, but grounded first and foremost in God's word. So that the interesting thing for dogmatics is God's word and not simply reflection on the the faith of that particular human fellowship. So uh, the key quote that Bart continues to develop through this uh, these first pages of section two is uh, he says the issue is the identity of the word of God with the human words in preaching and whether and to what extent uh, there is an identity there. So there's a good quote on page 25 for this. Bart says, quote, Dogmatics is very specifically reflection on this speaking with reference to the word of God, namely how far the word of God is or is meant to be identical with it. End quote. So dogmatics 
takes the raw stuff of preaching and reflects on whether and to what extent it is identical with the word of God. And he runs through a number of different arguments in favor of uh, his way of setting things up. One of them that I like uh, is his, well, I'll just, uh, yeah, one, one that I like is his second argument. He says, one of the great things about doing theology this way is that you never have a lack of raw material. There's always uh, an abundance of sermons out there for you to analyze, so you'll never run out of material. He says that on page 28. He says it also keeps dogmatics meaningful and practical. So he starts from the vantage or from the perspective that the church is engaged in the speaking, uh, calling call it preaching. And we've seen before how he defines preaching pretty broadly. Um, but the church speaks, and the question is whether it's speaking in a meaningful way. So he says he raises the question on twenty nine: What is meaningful here, and what is meaningless? So the task of dogmatics is, in one sense, to identify what's meaningful in Christian preaching and to separate it from what is meaningless. So to find that identity with the Word of God. And this keeps dogmatics focused on practical questions of meaning in the lives of particular human beings. So it's not just confession for the sake of confession. It is directed to this uh, practical end. And another benefit of this approach, Bart says, is that it keeps dogmatics fresh and contemporary rather than letting it get stuck in the past. So if you're focusing on the preaching that's happening, uh, then you're going to constantly be bumping into those contemporary issues, social questions, intellectual questions, and what have you, uh, that uh, keep the reflection on God's word in the world fresh rather than becoming stale and stuck in the past. And uh, in connection with this, dogmatics for Bart cannot be telling people what to believe. And that if you're doing theology and dogmatics for Bart and you think the whole point is just telling people what to believe, then he says you are doing it wrong. And especially interesting to me here is uh, he lifts uh, his teacher, Wilhelm Hermann, up as an example here of uh, doing theology in a positive way that doesn't let it become stale and stuck in the past. But he also praises Paul Tillich. And this is, I'll just read you a sentence from the bottom of page 29 onto page 30 on Tillich. Uh, let's see here. He says that this contesting of the idea that dogmatics is just giving you, uh, let's see, I'm going to start the quote a little bit farther up on 29. The idea that, quote, dogmatics burdens the consciences of Christians with propositions that they have to believe or accept as true if they are to be saved, end quote. So he's saying that's not the proper understanding of dogmatics. And uh, of that understanding, here's the quote. Quote, the contesting of which, of that understanding, the contesting of which today is the true religious nerve in the theology of Paul Tillich, which is anti-Orthodox at all costs, end quote. So I find this especially fascinating because so often, especially in English language theology, you get contrasts drawn between Bart and Tillich. And later things that Bart will say about Tillich can feed into this. Things that Tillich said about Bart will feed into this. But here we have, as Bart first turns to dogmatics, as he is deep in his explorations of dialectical theological method and what it's going to be mean, uh, what it's going to mean for doing theology in his own context, he lifts up Paul Tillich precisely because Paul Tillich is anti-orthodox. 
and how different this is from the perspective that reigns in uh, English language theology, which focuses on Bart as neo-orthodox, as a creative uh, repristinization or a recapitulation of traditional theological claims of orthodoxy in a certain sense. And Bart is saying Tillich is wonderful here because he is anti-orthodox. And in being anti-orthodox, he contests this idea that the purpose of dogmatics is to come up with statements that you need to believe. So he says, continuing on on page 30, quote, Dogma and dogmatics cannot be a matter of telling people, even theologians, what they must believe. The word of God saves, not faith, end quote. So again, locating the important thing in that prior initiative and act of God, not in uh, how, where that initiative and act touches down on the human person, not where human action responds to that initiative and act of God, and certainly not in faith in the sense of that which is believed, uh, as in the content. That certainly does not save. Bart tells us it's the word of God that saves. So that's the first subsection that he addresses in section two, the point of dogmatics. And then from there, he goes on into a discussion of preaching. And he, the main, the main thought here is he wants people to, quote, see God's address now, today, end quote, in preaching. So God speaks, Deus Dixit. God has spoken in the past, scripture, but God also speaks today, preaching for Bart. So uh, he wants people to attend to that speech of God today. And from a practical level, this doesn't seem to be particularly complicated in his mind. Uh, just, and I'm, I'm pulling just bits and pieces from uh, this second subsection on preaching. Uh, on page 31, he says, quote, There is no lack of good preachers and sermons, but a lack of sermons that are meant to be God's word and are received as such. A lack of qualified preaching. End quote. And I think I'm just going to stick with this one because it gets at both sides. For proper preaching in Bart's mind at this stage, you need two things. You need a preacher who is trying to speak God's word and intends to speak God's word. And you need a congregation or a group of people who hear that or are prepared to hear that sermon as God's word. Not necessarily in all of its details, uh, but nonetheless as God's word. And Bart, on a number of points, is uh, perfectly willing to accept that uh, pastors and preachers are fallible and you can't take everything they say in exactly the same way. We'll hear him say in a little while that uh, preaching is and has always been sick. Uh, but you need a preacher who is trying to preach God's word and you need a congregation who is trying to hear God's word in that sermon. And if you have those two things, you have the important bit of what should be happening in preaching. And he moves from the quote that I just gave you to, uh, thinking, to an analogy that's meant to bring home the significance of preaching and just how important it is. He says, quote, the best preaching, and end quote, I'm going to assume that he means there preaching that is done intending to be the word of God and is done skillfully as such in conversation with scripture uh, and also in the context of people listening for the word of God in that preaching. Quote, the best preaching is as such an equivalent to the kerygma that the Roman Catholic Church offers every day in the form of the sacrament of the altar. End quote. 
So the Eucharist in Roman Catholicism, you have the doctrine of transubstantiation, where the substance of the bread and the wine becomes the substance of the uh, body and blood of Christ. That identity there between the bread and the wine and the body and the blood. Bart is saying that it's very similar what you get in the sermon, this identity, and we heard him use that language already, this identity between the human word of the sermon and the word of God. And in this way, he talks about the sacrament as the visible word of God. And this is a, a line that he will continue on into the church dogmatics. You can find it in Church Dogmatics 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, he stops using this language in exactly the same way later on, although uh, I believe it still holds to a significant extent. And you can read about that in my book on Bart's Doctrine of Baptism. But that sacrament as verbum dei, as word of God, here in the Gerdigan dogmatics. He makes an interesting uh, tie-in here uh, with reference to what he says, the call for more liturgy. And that's a quote, call for more liturgy. And I think we see this uh, interesting dynamic in the contemporary world as well. You have Protestant churches who are uh, engaged in liturgical renewal. This was especially true in the 90s and the early 2000s. Uh, it's kind of slowed down a bit, but bringing more traditional aspects of worship back into the Protestant context. And basically, Bart claims that the reason you're getting these calls for more liturgy is because of a failure of preaching. So calls for more liturgy are actually evidence of a failure of preaching. Uh, because why would you need to build all this liturgy out and to put more of an emphasis back on sacraments and sacramental practices if you uh, have a preacher that shows up intending to speak God's word and you have a congregation who shows up intending to hear God's word? So the most important thing is to intend preaching and to hear preaching as God's word. And to make this point, Bart will cite the Second Helvetic Confession. Uh, and the Second Helvetic Confession makes this point that uh, preaching is the word of God. And I'm just giving you Bart's paraphrase of the confession here, I'm looking for a place to start this quote. Okay, so here we go. Quote, the preaching of God's word is God's word. This is how the heading of the second section of the Second Helvetic Confession runs, and it then goes on to say that whenever God's word is proclaimed in the churches by regularly called preachers, we believe that God's word is proclaimed and is received by believers, end quote. So this is this idea that he's picking up on, on the identity between the preached word and uh, of God and the word of God as such. Uh, is one that's embedded in the Reformed tradition all the way back to the Second Helvetic Confession. That's an important thing, I think, to note. And the corollary is that if you're going to deny that there's an identity of the human word in preaching with the divine word of God, then you're not only denying the word of God in preaching, but you're also denying it in Revelation and in Scripture. Uh, and so Bart's wanting to take the threefold word of God, hold them together, and say you either take the whole batch or you, you don't really accept any of it. You either accept that uh, the word of God speaks in Revelation, and we can think of Jesus Christ and his history here. The word of God uh, is present in Scripture, and the word of God is present in preaching. You can't just pick and choose. Now, um, he moves from here to uh, some interesting material that also survives into later versions of the church dogmatics, 
some of you perhaps are familiar with his line that the word of God may speak through Russian communism, a flute concerto, a fl- flowering scrub and a, a shrub and a dead dog. Uh, and he says something that, and it's a paraphrase, but it's real close, uh, in Church Dogmatics 1.1. We get him dancing around that kind of language here. And the point that he's trying to make is that the word of God is not contained uh, by the church and the church's preaching. Yes, preaching is, there is an identity between preaching and the word of God, but that's not the only place to access God's word. So yes, you need to show up to preaching uh, expecting to hear the word of God, but it's also possible to hear the word of God in other places. And that made me think again of his earlier very broad definition of preaching. Yes, that happened within the Christian context, but uh, but he had a very loose definition of it. Now, if we expand that definition even a little bit further, we can also think of uh, many other aspects of society where we might encounter God's word being proclaimed in human speech, in certain social movements, in political movements that are fighting for justice, and so on. And that's exactly where Bart goes with this, because on page 34, he starts talking about modern pagans. And I believe what he's uh, signaling with this language of modern pagans is socialism. So uh, this is toward the top of page 34. Uh, and he, he's going to cast a very wide net uh, with reference to preaching here. So, quote, I accept the preaching of the Reformed Church first, but also that of the Lutheran, United, and Methodist churches, and I expect to hear God's word as well from the Irvingites and the Christian Catholics, not sure exactly what that group is, and the Salvation Army. I am also glad to have heard God's word in Roman Catholic preaching. I will open my ears wide to be convinced that God's word might even come through voices that belong to no church, that are perhaps directed against every church, that have nothing to do with what we call religion, and yet that I have to listen to if I am not to be disobedient to the heavenly voice. I, am, I hope I am ready at any time to be open to God's word as, in fact, it may be spoken to me also in nature, history, art, and who knows, even my own heart and conscience. All this is true. End quote. So again, Bart is opening up the possibility uh, for this broader encounter with uh, God's word outside of the church. And he says further on down the page, uh, he's, he, so he expands that circle, and then he's going to tighten it in. So here's the tightening down at the bottom of 34, quote, It would be undisciplined to infer from the actual present, presence of wider possibilities that there does not exist between these distant possibilities and those that are closer, closer to hand, not an absolute, but a relative and important distinction, namely, that we resolutely stick to the latter, or at least start with them, end quote. So what he's saying here is that dogmatics, as reflection on preaching, looks to preaching first. You look for the word of God closer to home before you expand your horizon and look to it farther away. And I like that he says at least start with that closer to home proclamation. Get your bearings from that and then expand out from there. And I think that expansion is really important, both in Bart's day and in our own. And in Bart's day, the way that he brings in 
these modern pagans, I think, again, that he's thinking about socialists here specifically. And I think this is evidence of uh, his background in the Soffenville Parish and his engagement in union organizing and socialist politics in that context. I see we, I think that iceberg is poking up through the surface uh, at this point. So, um, moving on then to uh, the very end of this section, uh, reflecting on the criticism of preaching that is dogmatics, Bart makes a point that is going to become a staple for him. Dogmatics is basically a concern of all Christians and not just of theologians, and that's a quote. All Christians and not just, and here he means professional theologians. And in later contexts, he will say things like, all Christians are theologians, some do it full-time as a job, uh, but everybody is meant to engage in this reflection on preaching, looking for that identity between the human word of preaching and the word of God. And so we move on to the third subsection, which he simply titles as Reflection. And... An important point that he gets to here on page 37 is that the word of God is concealed, always hidden, concealed. It's not some obvious object objectifiably out there in the world. And this is a key point for dialectical theology in general, the non-objectifiability of God. Because God is non-objectifiable, also God's word in the world is non-objectifiable. And he talks about the different ways that revelation in its threefold form are concealed. So I'm going to read a section here from page 37, quote, Preaching, of course, is God's word in human words, concealed by the total inability of everything human to obtain to this object, just as God's word in scripture is concealed by the separating distance of everything historical, by Lessing's quote-unquote ugly ditch, and just as God's word in Revelation is concealed by God's inaccessibility, by his incomprehensibility, which does not cease but becomes very great in his revelation, end quote. I think it's really important to understand uh, what he's doing here, because this is, kind, again, another Trinitarian logic that he's bringing into his understanding of Revelation. So in the doctrine of the Trinity, traditionally, you have what's called the doctrine of appropriations. And you see this, for instance, in the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, when you're looking at the three different articles, the first article referring God uh, to God the Father or Creator, uh, the second God the Son, the third the Holy Spirit. There are different tasks and activities and responsibilities, so to speak, under each of those articles identified in connection with the different persons of the Trinity. But of course, we know that we can't separate out the different persons of the Trinity. They are all always uh, already united. And so this work is ultimately their common work. But uh, to make it easier to speak about, we can appropriate, so to speak, certain aspects of the divine work to the certain persons because those different persons in Revelation seem to take the lead on those different points. So it's kind of, it's, it's a, um, a way of dividing up information without ultimately separating it. So it's distinctions without separations. You get the same logic here. So Bart gives you here three reasons why the word of God is concealed. Uh, the first reason is everything human is unable to uh, communicate the divine. And I think here of Zwingli's uh, dictum from the Reformation, uh, and I'm totally, here it is, Infinitum non capax infinitum, or infinity. Uh, the finite is not capable of the infinite. And so we see this reflected in Bart. The total inability of everything human to attain to its object. 
There's also this idea of Lessing's ugly ditch. Things that happen in the past cannot communicate to you universal truths. And then on top of that, you have God's over and abundance, God's transcendence that gets in the way. So we've got three different reasons why God's word is concealed in the world. And Bart divides them up so that uh, the finite finite non-capax is tied to preaching and Lessing's ditch is tied to scripture and then God's ultimate transcendence is tied to revelation itself. But all of this is really a stack. All three of them apply to every instance of God's word in the world. It just makes a little more sense to identify certain problems as problems especially for certain forms of God's word. At least that's how I would interpret that uh, little bit that Bart does right there. But here we get at the, toward the back of this section. This is a relatively short section, the subsection on reflection. He describes dogmatics task as uh, the following. He says, quote, dogmatics must render to the church, render the church the service of seeing that its preaching has always been sick, end quote. So identifying for the community, not only that there is an identity between God's word and the human word preached, but there's also a lack of identity there. And that preaching is always inadequate to the task, uh, even at its best. And so dogmatics, by constantly reflecting on this in a critical mode, on that presence of identity or lack thereof, keeps that before the Christian community's eyes, that preaching has always been sick. And I think this is an interesting, that an interesting way of thinking about what he's doing here is to go back to his work on, uh, in the Roma brief, on his commentary on Romans. And in the preface uh, to those works, he reflects on the sort of criticism that he is engaging in with the biblical text there. And he refers to it as sock critic. And this means criticism according to subject matter. So what Bart is ultimately trying to do is, and he uses this language there and other places, he's trying to understand Paul better than Paul understood himself so that he stands with Paul as a recipient of that divine word that Paul is communicating and then can turn around and say, okay, here's some places where Paul could have communicated it better. Or here's how we might communicate that today. So being able to be critical of the biblical text precisely by hearing the biblical text, identifying the word of God in it, and then uh, reflecting critically on the whole in light of that word of God that you've identified. That is Socratic. So if that's how Bart undergoes uh, examination of scripture, that's also, I think, how he understands dogmatics in relation to preaching. In a certain respect, dogmatics for Bart is Socratic of Christian preaching. And if I just had to summarize it under a simple heading, how does Bart think of dogmatics? He says it's Socratic of Christian preaching. So I'll just put that out there for you. Uh, maybe it'll be helpful. If you want to learn more about Socratic, uh, David Congdon has a long section on it. Well, not a long section, 10, 15 page section on it in his book uh, on Boltmann, the really big book that I call the Tome on Boltmann. Uh, the Mission of Demythologizing is the title. And he talks about a debate between Bart and Boltmann over Socratic, and it's a really good uh, overview of the issues there. So I recommend that to you if you want to know more about Socratic. So we come finally to the fourth subsection here in section two, and this subsection is God's word 
and the church's human word. That's the title of it. Barth begins by reflecting on the difference between regular and irregular dogmatics. And if you've read Church Dogmatics 1.1, you're familiar with that distinction. Uh, I don't want to belabor it. But then he gets into the idea of dogma a bit. And he, un he identifies dogmas as provisional formulations. So it's when the work of dogmatics has progressed sufficiently far that a number of people, that the theologian and then other people in agreement have identified uh, certain principles and they formulate those principles and then uh, go on uh, on the basis of those principles to further test uh, those principles and develop other principles. And so Bart kind of sets up the cycle where you've got preaching and then dogmatics comes along and reflects on preaching and then dogmatics formulates dogmas and this is then going to inform preaching in direct and indirect ways but the important thing for Bart is to remember and again I think of how he lifts up Paul Tillich and says Paul Tillich is valuable precisely because he is anti-orthodox the important thing is that dogmas are provisional they can be false and no Christian or church is obligated uh, to accept or to believe any particular dogma. Bart says, I need hardly say, and uh, I think that's incorrect, especially in our day, the way that theology is done in much of English, uh, the English-speaking uh, world, I think it's very important to say. But Bart says, I need hardly say that for the church's own sake, this linking of dogmatic scholarship with the given confession of a church must not involve any obligation to stick with any given formulations. It's always provisional. So it always needs to be revised. It always could be false. Dogmatics is always in process and never complete. And then Bart talks about how the contemporary church, he's saying in his own day, I think also today, is regrettably undogmatic and making only the most uh, half-hearted and feeble attempts to be dogmatic. And when they do make those attempts, they're really just doing lip service to um, uh, older theological uh, positions and formulations. I think this is true in very different ways uh, for what we might call mainline Protestantism and evangelical Protestantism in North America. I think Bart's, uh, Bart's criticisms as he formulates them might apply more to, to mainline Protestantism. The, un, the problem with um, evangelical pro Protestantism, arguably, is that it is undogmatic precisely because it has misunderstood what dogmatics is and what dogma is. So all of the stuff that Bart's claiming about uh, binding consciences through dogmatic formulations uh, that are not uh, held as provisional, I think that's the problem you get into with evangelical Protestantism. So mainline Protestantism and evangelical Protestantism are undogmatic in different ways, but both ultimately undogmatic nonetheless. And Barth says that what the church needs uh, is somebody to wake it up from its undogmatic slumbers. And again, he is riffing on Kant. Kant famously says that Hume and Hume's philosophy awakened him from his dogmatic slumbers. And so Barth's saying we need to wake up from our undogmatic structures um, and or slumbers. And so he ends this section, the very last words of this section say, back to the sources, ad fontes, the cry of the Reformation, especially the humanist version of the Reformation, which influenced Calvin and Zwingli so much, influenced Reformed tradition so much. Got to go back to preaching in conversation with scripture, in search of and listening for revelation, that identity between the word of God preached 
and uh, God's Word, capital W. So that brings me to the end of that section of Bart, and I just want to go back really briefly to Bart's definition uh, of dogmatics as reflection on preaching, sock critic of Christian preaching, and I would, I, I just personally would love to see a larger definition, and maybe we would want to distinguish here between theology and dogmatics, and keep dogmatics uh, relegated to that reflection primarily on Christian sources. But to understand theology as a whole as that ex exactly the same kind of thing that kind of sach critic uh, executed on all speech about God that one encounters out in the world. And I think this would be a really interesting way to theorize public or political theology. So political theology would then be when you engage in sach critic on political statements and you analyze them to understand the ideas and concepts and pictures of God that are operative there, whether they are of a divine being or whether we just have concepts and ideas uh, that are taking on God-like significance in a particular political context. And then you bring uh, the, the wealth of resources available in the Christian tradition. You bring uh, what dogmatics that sock critic of Christian preaching is able to provide for you what sock critic of scripture is able to provide for you. And you bring that and you engage in sock critic on that political speech. And um, I, if I had a uh, research position where I had a lot more time to engage in constructive theology, I think that would I would make that into my program. Um, that would be a really interesting thing to pursue. How do we analyze that political speech and then how do we engage in sock critic uh, of it from this dogmatic theological perspective. Uh, so if that's exciting to you, I'd love to hear about it. At W. Travis McMacken on Twitter, don't ever hesitate to hit me up and start up a conversation. And uh, that's all for now. I'll see you next time with the next installment. You've been listening to the McCracken Cast. I am and hopefully will remain Dr. Travis McMacken. I do all the production work myself, in case you couldn't tell. But the music is by my son, Connor. Until next time, think interesting thoughts.